Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. My guest today is Aaron Freunschu, a history professor at Queens College in New York. He is the author of The Curtison and the Gigolo, The Murders in the Rue Montagna, and The Dark Side of Empire in 19th Century Paris. Such a great title. Thank you for being here with me. Thank you, Eric, for your invitation. What, what prompted you to write this book on these murders? Well, the short answer is I read about them in a newspaper. When I was living in Paris, I used to go and read and write in an old, beautiful old 16th century building in the Marais district uh, in the fourth arrondissement, a public library in the Rue Pavé that was dedicated solely to the history of Paris itself. It was a sort of reading room with massive old chairs and creaky wooden floors and Renaissance windows that opened out onto a pristine little garden just a jewel of a place. And one of its particularities is that you can actually page through 19th century newspapers in their original form, which is really rare. Uh, most libraries that have newspaper collections, they, they usually digitize them or, you know, they put them on microfilm or whatever, and you can go blind reading these things. Uh, so to be able to read the paper versions, well, I watched weeks of my life vanish doing this. And basically, I came across the murders in the Rue Montaigne um, while reading these papers. And I was living there at the time and doing research on crime in Paris. And I discovered that no one had really written about this case, even though it was a very big case at the time. And uh, the people involved were really cinematic in their manners, uh, consumed by ambition. And I also came to realize that it might be the first global murder investigation, one that drew evidence from several countries on at least four different continents. So um, I was pretty quickly drawn in. Talk about Paris, if you would, in 1887. What was the political and social climate like? <laughs> well, Paris uh, in the 19th century, it's kind of uh, impossible to sum up all that that city meant to Western civilization uh, without resorting to, uh, to cliché. It was the capital of the 19th century in one famous formulation. Uh, it was where the rest of Europe looked for ideas and also where it peaked often with apprehension in an attempt to discern its own future. It's often been said of this period that when France sneezed, Europe caught a cold. And the reason for that is because it was, Paris was a, was, was a capital of revolution. And so it uh, was constantly remaking itself. Politically, it was highly unstable. It was a tinderbox, really. And so it was naturally a magnet for 
painters and poets, composers, novelists, um, radicals and other rabble-rousers from across Europe and indeed beyond. Um, so it was a, a place where uh, there was a sense that the present was, was happening. Paris was the place to be. Socially, it was a place of great disparities of wealth. And this was uh, a real problem because France was then undertaking its first long-term experiment in liberal democracy. It had been uh, essentially a military dictatorship until 1870. And uh, then there was a civil war in Paris uh, where thousands of people were slaughtered by the French state. So it was also a place of recrimination, of suspicion, suspicion of a political nature, but also of a, of a social nature. Paris had been invaded, uh, well, surrounded and basically starved by the Prussian army in 1870. And the wealthy among the Parisians had, had fled, leaving essentially the workers to defend the city. And so there was a sense in the 1870s and the 1880s that the city was susceptible to another revolution of some kind. And as it happened in the mid-1880s, there arrived a populist general called uh, Georges Boulanger, who was, uh, you know, was just sort of a dashing fellow, uh, a great talker who attracted uh, huge crowds. And so in 1887, there was this sense that, well, this experiment in democracy might soon be over and uh, there might be the restoration of a kind of um, Napoleonic regime. And at the same time, Paris was resurrecting itself as a, as a global imperial capital. Even though it was a liberal democracy, the French decided that they were going to pursue um, the conquest and domination of peoples around the world, and especially in Africa and Asia. So there was a great deal happening uh, in Paris in the 1880s and a sense of impending doom as well. And despite the history of, of revolutions, there is still a very distinct class system. Can you talk about the class differences that existed in Paris in the 1880s? Yeah, so Paris in the 1860s especially created a relationship that we associate with modern cities between social class and neighborhood. Um, in fact, our word gentrification uh, in English and other European languages actually uh, really only comes into existence a century later. The French already had a word for it back in the 1860s, and that was because Napoleon III had essentially, with his prefect, a guy called Hausmann, had essentially tried to remake the city into a modern bourgeois paradise, um, and particularly the center and western districts. And that's where these murders took place, and that's what made them all the more shocking. People in those neighborhoods liked to think of themselves as cordoned off from the eastern part of the city, which is where uh, typically you found political radicals, workers, artisans, and also on the outskirts of the eastern outskirts of uh, Paris, you had modern industry taking shape. So it was a city, um, we often think of Paris as divided between left bank and right bank, um, because that's how the Seine flows through from east to west. But in fact, it's really a city more uh, uh, of western and eastern divisions. Now, before we go into the details of the murders, explain, if you would, the life of a courtesan in 19th century France. So courtesans were really the most elite of a vast hierarchy of sex commerce in Paris in the 19th century. Courtesans were prostitutes, uh, or what we would call kept women, and they uh, were the women who... Uh, frequented powerful politicians and administrators, diplomats, dignitaries, as well, of course, as kings. Um, the last French kings ruled in the first half of the 19th century. And so courtesans, um, of course, they go back centuries. 
These are women of the court. That's the name. And in the 19th century, they enjoyed a heyday under Napoleon III's regime, uh, which we call the Second Empire. And they lived an incredibly lavish lifestyle. In fact, they owned pieces of jewelry that would take uh, 5, 10, or 15 years for the average French worker to be able to pay for. Um, they lived in apartments that dwarfed the living quarters of the average Parisian. And so they had a kind of lifestyle that was a source of great fascination for Parisians. At the same time, their lives were uh, chaotic and dangerous. Um, they were dangerous because there were uh, diseases, of course. They were dangerous because the police were always coming after them. Um, prostitution was a, was a thriving shadow economy, but in fact, it was policed by a kind of shadow police called the Vice Squad. And as a result of that, uh, courtesans were, um, they required protection, essentially, from powerful men. And when that protection faltered, they could find themselves uh, summarily uh, arrested or deported in some cases. And then there was the problem of violence. Sexual violence was a constant threat. And in the case of the murders in the Rue Montaigne, the courtesan, whose name was uh, Regine de Monti, found herself uh, faced with uh, a client or a lover who she led into her apartment, and she paid for that decision with her life. There were three bodies discovered on March 17, 1887. C can you go into more details about this? You mentioned the name of, of one of the murder victims. Who were the others? And a little more about their backgrounds, who discovered their bodies, and just generally what the crime scene was like for investigators. So the crime was discovered on the morning of a great Parisian festival, a popular festival, which occurred every year at the midway point of the Christian holiday uh, or season of Lent, which lasts for 40 days. It's a season of fasting. And in 19th century Paris, at the midway point, for 24 hours, Parisians took a kind of uh, festive break from this and enjoyed a kind of bacchanalia before, at least in theory, going back to observing the fast. And the Mid-Lenten Festival kind of resembles uh, what we think of today as Mardi Gras, which is the festival that, of course, precedes Lent. And so it was a time where people got dressed up. They went out into the streets, they drank too much, they settled scores, they came back late at night. Uh, there was a good deal of uh, sexual exploration involved in the, in, the, in, the, in the festivities as well. So mid-Lent was a day in which there was a, a great deal more circulation than on other days. And as a result of that, um, the discovery of the murders essentially halted the city. So what does the crime scene look like when the police arrive? Where are the bodies? What do they deduce at the very beginning of their investigation? So Madame de Monti, whose real name was Marie Regnaud, had a personal staff. Uh, she had uh, a live-in servant, and the live-in servant had a daughter. And those were the three victims in this crime. She also had a personal chef who lived upstairs in the same building. And the building itself was located uh, just a few steps from the Champs-Élysées, the great uh, celebrated uh, avenue of luxury in Paris. And the personal chef came down to make breakfast for the household in the morning. And she couldn't get in. And so by the time she was able to get a locksmith and call the police, which she hesitated to do because bringing the police into a matter of a courtesan was a risky, uh, risky decision to make. By the time they were uh, they got they got into the apartment and discovered the bodies, uh, they found a really horrendous scene. There were pools of blood in three different places in both of the bedrooms. Uh, the live-in servant and her daughter had been slaughtered with a with a with a large knife, as had Marie Regnault. And 
the police who first arrived at the scene of the crime found the neighbors deeply upset, and they also found reporters there already uh, picking through the crime scene. Um, so the crime scene was right really from the beginning uh, compromised. It was also compromised with the rivalries of the police uh, and these uh, reporters and the various whispers and rumors that surrounded the life of a courtesan. So the crime scene was not a, uh, a tranquil space. It was, uh, from the very, very beginning, uh, overrun. The man that eventually becomes the primary number one suspect in the murder, uh, his name is Pranzini. Who was he and why was he the focus for the police? So uh, his name was Enrico Pranzini, and he was arrested actually in Marseille, which is uh, a southern port city, actually the gateway to the eastern Mediterranean in southern France. And uh, three days after the murder, he was in a brothel in Marseille, in an ill-reputed neighborhood of the city. And he paid two women to accompany him to a room in the brothel and uh, presumably for a threesome. And uh, after that was over, he, he showed them some jewelry and offered to give or possibly sell uh, this jewelry. And these uh, brothel prostitutes then told the madam uh, about this, and she promptly reported it to the police. And later that evening, Pranzini was um, taking in a show and during the intermission, he was arrested by the local police. Enrico Pranzini is a, is a very compelling character. If you don't mind, please explain what he looked like, what his background was, and, and what his occupation was. So Pranzini was a, well, he was a ne'er-do-well. He was a, a smooth character, a great dresser, a very good-looking man. Uh, he spoke several languages, uh, he uh, had been born in Alexandria in Egypt to uh, Italian immigrant parents from Tuscany. And Pranzini had basically squandered his uh, linguistic gifts and found himself in various cities in um, North Africa, the Eastern Mediterranean, Asia, and eventually in, uh, in France. And he was a young man who had figured out that he could live essentially as a, a gigolo, which is to say that he could provide company and, um, and sex to women who had some money, uh, who were typically older than he was, and who searched for such things. And so he made his way back to Paris, essentially this way. How were crimes investigated in Paris by police during this time? And what was their relationship to the press? So the 19th century was the golden age of the newspaper. Um, the Industrial Revolution had made newspapers very, very cheap to print. And uh, there were in any major city uh, a dozen or a dozen and a half daily newspapers, which is uh, striking when you compare it to today. Um, I live in New York City, and we have maybe two or three, plus a couple of free ones that they hand you when you go into the subway. So the industry of the newspapers and of the modern media was really only then uh, taking shape, and it required content. And content was provided by essentially young men coming from the provinces, moving to the big city, and dreaming of a literary career. Um, and these young men were often disappointed to find themselves providing uh, bits of content, very short bits, which in French are called the fait divers. These are really short newspaper columns involving kind of man bites dog or uh, freakish occurrences or uh, local crime stories. Now, of course, they didn't realize at the time that local crime stories would come to dominate uh, local news. Uh, in the 19th century, this sort of reporting uh, was frowned upon, and, and reporters themselves were viewed as ambitious upstarts who followed important people around and 
kind of took notes to report what they were doing. They were gossip mongers, scandal mongers. And the central reporter involved in the murders in the Rue Montaigne was a guy called Georges Grison. And Grison was uh, very much uh, an important figure in the rise of investigative reporting in Paris. He was of that first generation of young men who came to Paris and who realized that the police weren't terribly rigorous in their search for clues. And uh, moreover, the Parisian public was very hungry for these kinds of tidbits of information that could be uh, doled out episodically, like a story, every day in the newspaper. And newspaper editors quickly realized that audiences would follow a criminal case much better if it focused less on the criminal act and more on this search for the culprit over the course of weeks or months. So there was a big business in this kind of investigative reporting, even though it was undertaken by, as I say, these kind of upstart provincial figures. What evidence was gathered to build a case against Pranzini? So this, the, the crime scene itself uh, reminded everyone there of, of a locked room mystery. Edgar Allan Poe was much read and celebrated in Paris. Every major police officer, every writer of uh, crime fiction saw Edgar Allan Poe as a kind of founding father. Of course, he was. He ushered the detective story into Western literature. And when they arrived at the scene of the crime, they found that the doors were all locked from the inside. They found, in addition to the bodies and the pools of blood, that the house was very much in order. They, uh, they found a letter uh, in an envelope near uh, Marie Regnault's body, uh, which was found near her bed. And in this letter, there was talk of a meeting, possibly, at the theater. And she had opened this letter just hours before uh, she was killed. So the police rifled through her belongings. They eventually noticed that someone had tried to break into her personal safe, which contained a great deal of expensive jewelry. And uh, they remarked that the, the thief and the murderer had been unable to get into the safe. So that was, those were the principal findings. They also found cufflinks, men's cufflinks on the floor and a belt. And these items were initialed with, they were sort of personalized bespoke items. And so the, the police jumped at the chance to search for uh, what they believed to be a foreigner for reasons that are um, unclear, whose initials were G.G. Explain how things proceeded from there. Who were some of the, the key witnesses that they interviewed, and, and how did the evidence ultimately lead to Pranzini to the point where they, the police felt confident that they could arrest him and build a case around him? Well, in truth, they were not certain of Pranzini's guilt, though they certainly pretended publicly that they were. The reason for this is because the police were under a great deal uh, of pressure to solve a case like this. The police were a much maligned body, particularly by the newspapers, and there had been a series of unsolved murders, murders of courtesans, much like uh, Marie Regnault, or uh, women of the demi-monde, as they said. And so the police needed to find somebody. And when uh, Pranzini turned up in Marseille with this suspicious jewelry, it seemed that uh, he was certain to be uh, the prime suspect. They soon found out that Pranzini had left Paris shortly after the murder, which made him look uh, even more culpable. So once they settled on Pranzini, they had a kind of parallel investigation to find out who these cufflinks had belonged to, um, whose initials were GG. What again was the police's theory and how 
the doors were locked from the inside? Well, they they eventually came to the conclusion that the person who had, or persons who had killed the three victims had been admitted into the apartment by them and had been able somehow to uh, to leave the apartment and give the appearance of a of a botched robbery. There, there was a good deal of tension during the investigation, a lot of pressure on police, both internally and from the public. Can you talk about who in the police department headed the investigation up and some of the trials and tribulations suffered by the police as, as they proceeded? Yes, well, so there were two men essentially in charge of the investigation from the side of the police. Administrative justice is different in France than it is in England or the United States. And the police are by and large reduced, or at the time were by and large reduced to following orders and hunting clues. And they had a chief and a deputy chief whose names were Taylor and Goran, and these two men had been had had very different stories and had gotten to their positions of authority very differently. Taylor was a, a lifelong local inspector in Paris who was a a timid fellow, a polite, kind, but generally viewed as uh, incompetent uh, investigator. And beneath him, he had the recently hired Francois Goron, who was, to the contrary, a, a bombastic fellow, kind of oafish, who had tried to, to live the life of a military hero, um, but had failed miserably in this and found himself uh, investigating criminal cases in Paris. And because he was somewhat pushy and the kind of fellow who was very good at networking, he, he found himself in, in this position uh, beneath Taylor, who he viewed with some affection, but there was definitely a kind of rivalry, at least in terms of the two men's sensibilities, that became apparent during the months of the Pranzini investigation. We will be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. 
Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. What was Pranzini's interrogation like, and and were they able to get any more information out of him? So from the very beginning, Pranzini denies all charges, and and he never wavers uh, in his denials. He is uh, jailed. It's hard to say exactly how he was treated while he was in jail, though at the time uh, it was not uncommon to to push suspects around a bit, to put them in, in corners of a prison, in, uh, in solitary confinement, even to strike them, uh, what we would today call torture. These sorts of practices had not been barred by French law yet. Uh, so what precisely he went through once he was brought back to Paris and questioned uh, behind closed doors uh, is, is difficult to know. What we do know is that he was questioned intensively by uh, judiciary officials, and uh, he was questioned about his his adventures, essentially, in the, on the edge of European empires in North Africa and Asia. And he had lived a, a quite remarkable life. He'd been as far as Jakarta. He'd grown up in Alexandria, but he'd lived in uh, what is today. Uh, Syria. He had lived in what is today uh, Istanbul, what was then called uh, Constantinople. He had been a translator. He had worked as an interpreter. He had served the British Imperial Army in two of its legendary expeditions. He had been a businessman, a salesman. He'd worked in casinos. He'd worked on trains. Uh, as a conductor. And in between, of course, in between those jobs, he had gotten himself into trouble for uh, petty theft. And he generally made a pretty poor reputation for himself across Europe, certainly in Egypt, and as far as India and even Jakarta. And as you've already inferred, his background in travels did have a lot to do with why he was a suspect, right? Definitely. So the the police, as well as journalists, have basically have incorporated within a, the matter of a few weeks a number of colonial stereotypes that circulated commonly at the time, which tended to paint uh, people of the colonies, even those of European descent who lived in the Near East or what we call what was called the Levant commonly back then. These were people who were viewed often as hybrids, and they meant this in cultural and racial, uh, certainly in linguistic terms. And the 19th century was uh, the time of the rise of the nation state and of nationalism. Nationalism tends to demand a kind of purity of, of identity, uh, and it tends to be suspicious of that uh, which reminds one of the, of the outside world, of that beyond the nation's borders. So migrants, um, particularly those who had uh, some parentage in the Near East or who spoke Arabic, as Pranzini did, were really right off the bat viewed with a kind of uh, suspicion, even a kind of criminal suspicion. 
So there's not a lot of time between the murders in March and the trial in July, and lots of pressure to get justice for the victims as, as quickly as possible. Is this true? Very much so. And as it happens, as I mentioned earlier, in 1887, there was this nationalist, populist sentiment that was on the rise and was associated with this figure, uh, General Boulanger, who was um, a, a really, really uh, important political man in the rise of modern French political xenophobia, which is to say a stirring up of anger and fear about foreigners who were present in France who may bring with them some kind of criminal past or some kind of threat to uh, particularly to French women. Um, and this was always racially charged. There were always anti-Semitic undertones to this um, and certainly uh, anti-German undertones to it as well because uh, Germany was uh, the great rival of France. So the fact that Pranzini had served the British army was another reason, another uh, another uh, element of his past to hold against him. So, you know, in an unexpected way, uh, these various uh, currents uh, that were emerging on the right of the French political spectrum coalesced and came to, to take Pranzini as, uh, as a symbol of this dangerous threat of migrants and of immigrants. And they kind of jumped aboard over the course of those months and in the months that followed with Boulanger, who was originally a figure who was embraced by the left. But populism draws from the right and the left. And so long as it can find some kind of common, common enemy. And the timing was such that Pranzini became this kind of, of scapegoat. So the trial of Enrico Pranzini, the, the sole defendant in the murders, began on July 9th, 1887. What was the scene like outside the courtroom that day? So the record left behind by the reporter Grison uh, and others is one of utter bedlam uh, outside the courtroom. The presiding judge in the case, who was a bit of a ham himself, um, had issued tickets which he had essentially printed on, uh, he'd used the backs of um, omnibus or, or public bus tickets. And he had even assigned places, uh, which is to say um, seating arrangements within the courtroom. Um, and he was uh, very sure to give uh, the most prominent places to leading figures, especially those within the, the Boulangist movement. So the courtroom was set up um, much as the cliche of the time would have it, as a theater spectacle. And outside the courtroom, there were many other people who tried to get in. There was pushing and some screaming, uh, some fainting, uh, a really unruly scene. The trial lasted for four days, and one of the many characters in this trial was a man that you just mentioned named Breville. Quite a character, and he, he seemed focused on using a set of letters as evidence, and there really wasn't much else. The prosecution had, had lots of problems. No murder weapon, some of the eyewitness testimony fell flat. How did the, the prosecution ultimately make their case? Right, so they very pragmatically make the decision to ensure that Pranzini will be found guilty by uh, painting him as as an outsider who is seducing upper class so-called respectable French women as well as courtesans like Marie Regnault. So their case is by and large built upon the love letters that Enrico Pranzini had received from women that he had met during his travels, as well as those who were based in Paris, along with a number of anecdotal uh, testimonies uh, to the effect that Pranzini had a colorful past in, in sexual terms. He was a gigolo, and this he himself never denied. But the, the prosecution's case uh, was essentially focused on that element, and the question was, 
would it be enough to demonstrate to jurors that Pranzini was guilty in this particular criminal case? And a lot of attention was directed towards Pranzini's physical appearance, his clothes, the kind of effeminate way he carried himself. Right. So Pranzini was the handsomest criminal defendant that anyone could uh, recall. And he was a figure of elegance. He was a man who, who wore uh, evening wear to the courtroom, who uh, was implacable in the, in the face of criticism and particularly in, in when confronted with the jokes that were lobbed at him during the trial itself. He was insulted by the presiding judge and by the prosecution, um, but he appeared unruffled by it all. And this only provoked his adversaries to greater heights. So it seems that um, Pranzini's comportment, which betrayed no, no sense of guilt or remorse, uh, actually worked against him. What strategies did Pranzini's attorney use to counter the prosecution's attacks? So uh, Pranzini's defense attorney was a guy called Edgar Demange, who was perhaps the most important, certainly the most famous defense attorney of the period. And defense attorneys tend to take a lot of bad press. Um, they're viewed as uh, defending criminals or, or, or saving criminals from their deserved punishment, especially as uh, if they're skillful attorneys. And Demange was one of these attorneys who is able to get some pretty well-known defendants cleared of, of wrongdoing. So Pranzini was quite fortunate to find Demange defending him. And Demange came to the courtroom, and in addition to challenging the prosecution's lack of a smoking gun, he uh, went along with the reasoning of Pranzini himself. Pranzini, when asked by the police where he was on the night of the murders, replied that he had been with a woman of society whose name he would not disclose because he respected the gentleman's creed. He was a chivalrous man, and or, or so he said. And so Demange took this testimony and basically used the prosecution's charge that Pranzini was a womanizer uh, against the prostitution. He turned it around by saying, well, he claims to have been with another uh, woman on the night of the murders. All that you're telling us points in the same direction. Demange was kind of an attention hound, wasn't he? He, he latched on to Pranzini's case partly because of the notoriety. Well, Demange is a complicated figure. Uh, unfortunately, he left behind little in the way of published writing. He was a brilliant performer, a big barrel-chested man with a deep voice and a skilled orator, but he wasn't a great writer, and so it's difficult to know precisely what his calculation was in getting involved in the Pranzini case. But he was known to believe in the rights of the defendant to a fair trial and uh, in many ways, he was a pioneer in this regard. He later defended Captain Dreyfus during the Dreyfus Affair just several years later, which almost put France on the path to civil war. So he had a long history in his career of defending people who were charged with crimes and who appeared set for a guilty verdict. Demange shocked the court when he changed the plea for Pranzini at the end of the trial. Why did he do it, and what happened because of it? Well, this was uh, the, the the trick up Demange's sleeve um, that really no one saw coming, and I'm sure that uh, Pranzini himself wouldn't have approved of it. But basically, Demange tries to get Pranzini off by suggesting that he had come into contact with 
the aforementioned jewelry because he was an accomplice in some way or a fence. In other words, he didn't commit the murders because, after all, he had no no record of any violent act, even people who who had uh, disliked Pranzini and in, in his past had said as much. He was not a, a person with a, with a violent past. Um, so Demange more or less settles on the idea that Pranzini got possession of the jewels, was going to uh, transport them perhaps back to Egypt. And as a result of this, he didn't deserve the, the guillotine. What was Breville's reaction to this? So uh, Breville uh, snarls at this and he grows himself, he grows upset because the courtroom begins to slip out of his control. Breville had been kind of half presiding judge and half impresario who had amused the courtroom audience to a great extent. But when Demange offers his final statements, his closing statement in the case, he upstages Breville. And uh, the courtroom, almost uh, by a kind of sleight of hand, seems to sway in, in, in favor of the defense. But the final verdict does not go in Pranzini's favor. Can you talk about the verdict and, and the sentence? So Breville is deeply upset. He's angry by Demange's performance. And the jury, instead of coming back immediately with a guilty verdict, actually takes a few hours and people begin to wonder whether uh, Demange's uh, performance hasn't saved Pranzini in the end. But the jury comes back with a guilty verdict and Breville kind of thunders at the end that the penalty will be death. So we've got Pranzini facing a difficult trial, but there, there was another suspect as well. Let's go back to the cufflinks you mentioned earlier with the initials GG. Tell the story, if you would, about the, the police's pursuit of the man who owned the cufflinks. Yeah, so at the beginning of the investigation, uh, Gaston Geisler, or someone that the police thought was called Gaston Geisler, became the prime suspect. Um, in addition to the, the letter that was found near the bed of Madame de Monti, the, the courtesan, and a leather belt on the floor and the cufflinks, either with the name Geisler or the initials GG, it all seemed to point to the same guy. And so the police went downstairs and asked the building's concierge. The concierge was kind of like a doorman. Most buildings in Paris back then had a, had a concierge. And almost all of the fancy buildings in the western and central parts of Paris had a concierge. And these were kind of the... The first witnesses, always the first witnesses to be questioned by the police. They were kind of the eyes of the building. Um, and they knew just about everything that went on, including rumors and gossip and so on. And at number 17, Rue Montaigne, the concierge's wife had indeed noticed a male visitor coming around to visit Madame de Monti in recent weeks. And she'd kind of mocked him and made fun of him behind his back. She took a dim view of the guy. She described a man who was uh, puny, uh, kind of shabby, brown-haired, decidedly uh, not upper class, as she put it. And so the police put out a, a, a bulletin with that kind of vague description, including their own suspicion that the culprit was a foreigner of some kind, and uh, within 48 hours, they heard from a hotel owner in the eastern part of Paris, near the Gare du Nord, which was a working class area, um, that there had been a guest, a male guest, traveling alone, registered under the name of Geisler. Uh, and it happened that this Geisler had skipped out uh, without settling his bill on the night of March 16th, uh, 17th, which is to say the night of the murders. So the chief and his deputy raced over there and went digging around through the room uh, and all the personal items left behind there. And uh, sure enough, there was a German-language newspaper, which was, of course, very suspicious. At that time, uh, Germany was, was always the great enemy. And there happened also to be a bespoke shirt in the room emblazoned with the initials GG. Uh, so the investigators, uh, well, they were naturally elated. Everyone in the room shouted in, 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 kind of in unison, Gaston Geisler, they, 
they were certain to be um, to have kind of found, if not found their man, at least uh, to have been on the uh, on the right on the right path. And as it happens, the reporters were were tailing the cops, and they went to the hotel themselves, and they started interviewing the hotel employees, and the employees confirmed more or less the description of the concierge's wife. So there was this kind of consensus, essentially, that. Uh, Gaston Geisler was the murder, uh, was the murderer rather, and 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 then came and then came news of the arrest of uh, of Enrico Pranzini way down in Marseille in southern France, and Pranzini was uh, was a bulky, muscular guy, a great dresser, and so the two descriptions couldn't have been uh, more more opposed really, and so this opened up a, a problem for the police. Basically, they were torn between these two suspects and having no evidence to link the two of them, um, the police, there was kind of a risk uh, in appearing to follow the Geisler lead and to take it really seriously, uh, because anything that they found in that direction may be used by Pranzini's lawyers in court to suggest that there had been a more serious suspect and that he, had, that the police had kind of settled on Pranzini uh, because they were unable to find Geisler. <laughs> so the police... Uh, amongst themselves, basically agreed to pursue Geisler kind of more or less discreetly uh, in a kind of parallel investigation and unfolded. While meantime, officials in the British and French empires overseas gathered information about Pranzini. So that was sort of the genesis of this Geisler lead that never quite went away. Continue, if you would, with the story. It's fascinating. Who was this guy and what more did you find out about him? What happened is, even though the, the, the chief, Taylor, and, and the deputy chief, uh, Goron, they, they agreed to do this more or less discreetly, the deputy chief had kind of a thirst for the spotlight, and he wanted to play the role of the international adventurer and investigator. He had been a colonial soldier overseas himself. So this this desire to kind of ennoble police police work and policing and and uh, and the investigation led him to kind of strike out uh, across Germany in, in pursuit of Geisler and you know from Cologne all the way to what is today Poland and to the chagrin of his bosses Goron's investigation kind of took the form of a public tour uh, and it was much discussed in German, British, and French newspapers, and brought him a kind of, not to say stardom, but a minor minor celebrity. He got all the way to the town of Breslau, in what is today Poland, and he actually found the maker of this, of this bespoke shirt that had been found in the hotel. And this shirt maker pointed him to the house of Gutentag, a, a well-to-do family, whose unruly son, George, had fallen out with his father and run off to Paris, George Gutentag, GG. So Goron goes digging around uh, in Breslau, and he learns that, in fact, George Gutentag had been arrested back in Paris after he attempted to leap from uh, from a bridge over the River Seine. Um, he, he was he tried to commit suicide after after running out of money. And so it was the same man who had left the hotel room without without paying, without settling his bill, and, and he was now sitting in a Parisian jail. So when the police turned up at the jail cell, uh, Geisler, Geisler told him that he, he his name was Gutentag, but that he had been traveling under, under an assumed name so as not to bring shame to his family. And Geisler, he explained to them, was a quite common name. Uh, in Germany, so it seemed like uh, a good cover, and so then you know this all this confusion. Well, if this is uh, if this isn't Geisler, well then who is the Gaston who had let who had left the letter in in Madame de Motis' bedroom? And then pretty soon you have one or two more Geislers stepping forward to talk to the police, and the situation grew embarrassing. The reporters began mocking Taylor and, and Goron once again. Uh, and so the chief and deputy chief understood that their best bet was to bury the whole Geisler debacle altogether by delivering George Gutentag to the German embassy along with a one-way ticket out of the country uh, to ensure that the, that 
that Parisian reporters wouldn't wouldn't have a chance to to ever talk or talk with him or question him. So so this Geisler story actually had kind of kind of an afterlife and may have become a basis. Well, at least an implied basis for Pranzini's defense at trial. Was Pranzini's attorney uh, Demange ever able to contact uh, Gutentag? So Gutentag was was given money by he was wired some money uh, by his own cousin to head to the United States, and it seems likely that Gutentag became another another uh, German immigrant on uh, to, to to enter through Ellis Island. Uh, Demange was never able to contact him, though he knew very well of the story, and uh, because the press had covered it so extensively, um, and there was a kind of, again, a kind of general confusion about who who this Gutentag had been, and could he have possibly uh, helped Pranzini? Could he have played a role? Um, I learned in digging around in the archives that the police essentially backdated all of their reports. They they faked their uh, internal reports in case the records were ever called up to indicate that essentially uh, Gutentag couldn't have played a role, that he was arrested and jailed and so on. And, 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 and basically they tried to make it look like Geisler or, or rather Gutentag <laughs> uh, couldn't have had any role so as to really focus all of the guilt on, on Pranzini. Can you talk about Pranzini's days on death row and his final execution? Yes. So Pranzini had been living with a Parisian woman called Antoinette Sabatier, and her testimony in the courtroom was one of the trial's really most dramatic moments. She believes that Pranzini is not guilty, and she spends the summer of 1887 uh, essentially campaigning with the help of Demarche to save Pranzini. And the way she decides to do this is to go to the president of France himself and to ask for some kind of pardon or some, time, some kind of uh, commutation of the sentence. So Pranzini spends the last uh, weeks of his life in, uh, in a prison cell he reads French novels. He receives visits from the prison chaplain. And all through the, the episode, he maintains his innocence. So the execution of Enrico Pranzini counts among the most sordid in all of modern European history. There were the usual displays of the public's thirst for, for the guillotine, for the spectacle of the guillotine. And for days, the public waited in the eastern part of Paris where Pranzini was imprisoned. Uh, the crowd sang songs. They carried on and partied nights away, waiting for the early, uh, early morning execution to arrive. Uh, Pranzini heard them, incidentally, while he was in his prison cell and asked what the noise was outside of the prison. They, by the thousands, clogged the streets until finally uh, he was brought out to the guillotine and, and beheaded. So do you have any theories on the murders? Do you, do you think Pranzini did it? Uh, well, Eric, I, um, I'm an historian, and that makes it really hard for me to, to speculate beyond what what I have available in terms of the documents. I can't say that I have a theory. Guilt is a difficult question. It is both a procedural question and a factual question. Uh, in other words, we rely on the justice system to provide a fair evaluation of evidence. And when that doesn't occur, we consider in modern uh, societies based on rule of law, that uh, guilt can't be determined. At the same time, it's really hard to project our standards of justice back in time. Certainly by our standards of justice, Pranzini was not offered uh, anything remotely, something like due process. So that's, that's the procedural question and, and the procedural legal matter of guilt. 
then there's the factual question. Was he there on the night of the murders? In the end, I really can't say for sure either way. I think that he may have had something to do with them. Uh, maybe Demange was right that he had tried to fence the jewels. Maybe Pranzini had confessed this to Demange at some point, um, though that seems unlikely. Maybe Pranzini was the killer. Uh, there's certainly some reason to suspect him. He, he had departed the city for no uh, terribly good reason suddenly uh, in the after, aftermath of the murders. He had discussed them with his lover at the time, Antoinette Sabatier. So uh, I, can't, I can't say beyond that uh, with any kind of certainty whether he was, uh, was guilty. This was an incredibly sensational crime during its day. Are, are the people of modern-day France in general aware of this history? Not in the least. If you ask Parisians today who was Enrico Pranzini or Henri, Henri Pranzini, as they say in French, no one would be able to tell you uh, who he was or what this particular criminal affair entailed. Um, and in part, that's because uh, within months of the Pranzini uh, investigation and trial, the Jack the Ripper murders began to occur in London. And those really have overtaken the, the murders of the women of the Parisian demi-monde uh, of the 1880s uh, in the popular imagination, certainly in scholarship. So while there are uh, libraries written about Jack the Ripper, the Parisian cases have been completely forgotten. Did anything change in French society after this was all over? Were there any lasting effects? Well, there were a number of immediate effects. Pranzini's execution led to a, a, a really quite disgusting chapter Basically, his headless corpse was taken to the medical school for uh, autopsy and examination. And when it arrived, it was treated much as, trans as Pranzini had been treated in life. It was treated as a kind of spectacle. There were journalists, some of the city's most prestigious physicians. And um, within the matter of a few days, his body, his his body was turned into a kind of, uh, of trophy. Parts of his body disappeared, and a couple of weeks after the execution, it was discovered that large flows of his skin had been uh, removed from the medical amphitheater and uh, fashioned into card holders, kind of like wallets. And this generated a scandal that went all the way up to the top of the French Republic. And um, at the time, the president was a guy called uh, Jules Grévier. And um, he, uh, in part, because of the dire political circumstances brought about by this populist xenophobic turn, and in part because of the revelations that the police had been involved themselves in this trophy-making of Pranzini's body, he fell and never governed again. More broadly, politically, the French Third Republic, while it was involved in this imperial uh, expansion abroad, became quite concerned that there would be some kind of return of the colonial people to France, to, to the nerve center of the empire. And so in this kind of paradox, really, you have a nation state that wants to be an empire. In other words, wants to invade other countries, occupy them, essentially dissolve foreign borders, while at the same time growing anxious about its own so-called porous borders. And so there were uh, stricter immig immigration uh, controls put into place in the months after uh, the Pranzini case, and those were long-lasting. So let me ask you this. Where can people learn more about you and get your book? 
so uh, my book was just released by Stanford University Press. Um, it's called The Courtesan and the Gigolo. You can find it on Amazon.com uh, or any of the other usual booksellers online or, or your local bookstore. Thank you again for your time. Thanks for having me, Eric. It's been a pleasure. Again, my guest today has been Aaron Freundshu, the author of The Courtesan and the Gigolo, The Murders in the Rue Montagne and the Dark Side of Empire in 19th Century Paris. And this has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.